Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah talk in Dutchess County, New York. I am your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Schechter School of Long Island. And with me in the studio today is Jessica Fisher, an incoming fifth-year rabbinical student at JTS, and Gabe Cohn, sometimes known as Gabe Cohn Pollock. Where's the Pollock Cohn? It's Paul Cohn. Gabe Pollock Cohn, a second-year, an incoming third-year student at JTS. This is our last Parsha talk scheduled for the season since camp is coming to a rapid end. This Sunday we have the observance of Tisha B'Av, and a few days later the campers and then the staff will be going home for the regular school year. So our Parsha this week is Parsha Tavarim. It's the first book of uh, it's the first Parsha of the last book of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy. The scene is a famous one. The children of Israel are perched on the east side of the Jordan River, and Moses is about to address them and rehearse their history from the last 40 years. It's worth quoting the first verse of the book, Eila hadvarim asher diber Moshe, el kol Yisrael be'ever hayardain, ba'midbar ba'arava molsuf ben paran ben tofel v'lavan v'chatzerot v'dizahav. These are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel in the Transjordan. Rashi comments that the phrase Elahat Varim suggests that what is going to come are reproofs of B'nai Israel, and they're counted here in curious terms, terms that we have not really met before, in order that God show his love and respect for B'nai Israel. Even though these are places that honored that where B'nai Israel angered God, he is not mentioning them by their more familiar names, but is using hidden language. And Rashi goes on to note that with Kal Yisrael, all of Israel is addressed so that someone might not later say that had he been there, he would have stood up to Moshe in the rebuke for in the rebuke of the people for their past history. So we come to the last week of camp. It's been a wonderful summer on, in many accounts. How do we look back at camp? Do we look back and see the things that didn't quite go right, or do we see the things that stood out for us both personally and professionally and use that to shape the story that we will tell? Jessica? I think we probably do a little bit of both. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that we are like B'nai Israel and that we were all present here at camp for this whole summer um, and we've had many opportunities to stand up and say what we needed to say and do what we needed to do like the people of Israel might have had um, if they wanted to take that opportunity. Um, we can't go home from at this point and say, oh, if only I had been there, I would have done these things differently. On the other hand, we've done and tried so many new things this summer, some with success and some that were challenging and maybe need to be rethought, um, but we put the effort in because we were present and we were able to try. There have been days when I said, wow, this, is, this has been the best summer I've ever had in camp, and days when I said that this is not the best summer I've ever had in camp. Um, but as I'm you know, looking forward to this last week and thinking about how my summer has gone, I feel very, very happy with the way it, it's been, um, very comfortable in my role as mashkiach at camp, um, and happy with some of the things we've done. I think we did a great job teaching about some of the midot in camp and thinking about the value of Kehillah and what it means to be part of a Kehillah here in camp. So to return to the Parsha for this week, Devarim, Moses uses this as an opportunity 
to tell a different story than we've seen in the previous books of the Torah. In particular, we have a very different account of the episode of the spies. When we began camp seven weeks ago with Parshat Shalach, it's hard to believe it's so long ago, God tells Moshe to send scouts into the land of Israel. Here, Moshe says that the people have asked him to send scouts. How might we understand that? Um, well, revisionist history is, is real, and it's a, it's a true psychological phenomenon. Um, and I also think there's a really powerful message here about the stories that we um, see happen in terms of what is true and actual in the world, but also the stories we tell ourselves. And this sounds like this is the story Moshe is telling the people now, but it's probably based on the story that he might have been telling himself for a long time over the generations of wandering through the wilderness. Yeah, I think um, however many years it's been, uh, now we're in our, talking about the 40th and final, some of the details get lost along the way and, and retold in a different way. And sometimes uh, public imagination is even more important than what happened itself. So one of the great characteristics of the Torah is that when we read along, especially if we follow every week in the synagogue reading, we have the sense that events are unfolding at the time. So we can imagine Moses hearing the voice of God, sending the scouts into the land with great hope and expectation. When they come back, of course, their report was a negative report and ended up in the costing the Israelites not only 40 years in the wilderness, if we look at their history as a collective people, but for all those people who were over 20 at the time, they're going to end their lives in the wilderness far short of the goal that they had set for themselves when they left Egypt. Forty years later, perhaps Moses, reflecting, realizes it was not the voice of God that he heard. It was the voice of people who wanted to take things into their own hands, and the results were tragic for the people, and especially for Moshe, who blames the people here for his inability to get into the land of Israel. You've both been at camp for more than one season. You're veterans of the rabbinical school. How has the Torah changed for you in the course of your years? Um, I think being a rabbinical student, I'm, I just feel overwhelmed by the amount of material there is in the Torah, how rich every single pasuk and every single word is even. Um, and I think that's something I didn't have a full appreciation for before getting to rabbinical school. Um, you know, now that I'm kind of in this role of coming back to something we talked about in our last Parsha talk, uh, what does it mean to be viewed as a rabbi or a rabbinical student? I think there's an expectation that somebody can go up to you, ask about a specific verse or word, and they're going to hope for an answer. And I'm so overwhelmed by how much there is and how much I still have yet to learn that I don't feel like I'm there yet. And that's something I'm going to work on in my next three years in rabbinical school. I also think there's something to the context in which the Torah is being learned and taught. I think the way that I talked about a given Parsha before rabbinical school in a shul context was different than I would talk about it here at camp or than I talk about it in a class in school or in a place that I'm in, in an intern role. Um, my voice is different and uh, the things that I want to say and the messages I want to communicate are different and so I'm going to read the Torah differently when I'm in those different modes. So let's focus, if we could, on the specific cause of Moses not getting into the land of Israel. In Parshat Chukat, the well-known story of Moses and the rock, Moses perhaps hits the rock when he wasn't supposed to. Certainly he committed a great sin in the eyes of God, 
And God says at that point, both you and Aaron will not be allowed to get into the land of Israel. Here in Sefer Devarim, in the context of telling the story of the spies, he said, because of you, B'nai Israel, I am unable to get into the land of Israel. Is this a kind of sour grape for Moses as he looks back at his long and illustrious career? Not quite, even at the end, willing to recognize perhaps his own culpability for his failure to get into the land of Israel. I think this is something that feels appropriate for the Torah and kind of our Jewish identity. We're always, we're always kind of hoping and longing for the next thing. And in um, that way, it feels appropriate that Moses didn't make it. The, you know, the Torah ends on this kind of cliffhanger. Um, in the same kind of way, we're still always hoping for Zion. Um, you know, maybe that's rooted even as far back as in the Torah. We're always looking to the next thing. I also see in it um, a hesitation for Moshe to take more responsibility for his own anger and his actions with the rock, um, and maybe also interest in distancing himself from the people of Israel. Like They're about to leave him behind, um, and maybe he's feeling resentful and jealous, and some of it is him lashing out at them. Oh, you get to go in, but I have to stay here, um, so I'm going to put a little bit of this blame on you and not take all the credit myself. So there are a number of other events that are recorded in the Torah reading this week that have been narrated previously. One of them is at the very beginning when Moses says that the people have proved to be too great of a burden. And it's kind of curious language. He says that God has fulfilled his promise and made the people as numerous as the stars, and therefore he cannot rule the people all by himself, and therefore he is going to appoint judges that will help him rule the people. When we first encountered the story of Parshat Yitro, it was Yitro, Moses' father-in-law, who made this suggestion, and there wasn't quite a reference to the, the growth of the people. We're familiar with the promise that God makes to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. I don't know that any of us really think that 600,000 fighting men is as numerous as the stars. So I'd be curious to know what you actually think that promise means. How can we actually put a number on the promise? And whether God has actually enabled B'nai Israel to fulfill this promise. Gabe, why don't we start with you? Um, actually, there's something I thought about with the, you know, why, why it feels important that Devarim starts going back to this um, idea of, you know, uh, what's the word, of, of Moses passing off responsibility and um, not taking it all for himself. This always felt like a model of leadership and something that's recalled at an important place. That Moses, as a leader, can't take on everything and that he needs to rely on those who are as numerous as the stars in the sky. Um, it feels also appropriate for Moshe, like preparing for the end of his life towards the end of Tvarim and saying, that, you know, you're going to be the ones who are after me. Um, and even if we're not as numerous as the stars in the sky, it's still a pretty good number. I think it's also a way for him to again take um, some maybe some pride um, in what was it, what was able to he was able to accomplish in his role as a leader. Um, he doesn't refer, refer to Yitro here and and comes up with it as sort of his own idea. So um, I think some of it is also him saying, "Look at this great people that I've able been able to shepherd through the wilderness and and um, come up with the system to help manage them, even though, as you said, maybe it's not quite as many as he's dreaming it up to be." So, if we could take stock for a moment, it's the beginning of Sefer Devarim, the end of our summer at camp. 
What kind of a leader do we think Moses is at this moment? It's a good question. I don't know if it has a, I don't know if there's one answer. He's simultaneously recounting the good and the bad um, and just maybe just kind of laying it all out there. Yeah, I mean, I think when I've read this story in the past, I've, I've, or this, this uh, Parsha in the past, I've, I've felt like, oh, this is such a great thing. He's, you know, recapping their story together as a people before they part ways. He's transitioning leadership. And, and today, as I'm going through it, I'm, I'm feeling much more of a sense of him being uh, reluctant to let go um, and him uh, feeling, I think, some complicated feelings about his own tenure. Um, and in that way, I respect him a lot as a leader who's able to be reflective and honest about some of the challenges of his leadership but also see him obscuring some of the challenges that he went through. So as you look at Moshe as he appears in the book of Devarim, is this someone that you see as a model for yourself as a leader in the Jewish community? Or perhaps you look to other people, either in the Tanakh or in rabbinic literature, for role models? I always like to think of, you know, somewhat of a cliche uh, response, but I always like to think I see myself, some of myself in Moshe and his, and his reluctance to kind of step forward as a leader. Um, I, I don't naturally naturally gravitate towards the uh, spotlight, and I saw that kind of in Moshe, and here we're getting the total opposite. He's, he's so talkative and, you know, kind of launching into the speech, um, a very long speech. Um, so in this way, in this place, I really don't see myself there. I, I think the answer is, is yes. I think you can find I, I try to find ways that I want to model myself after all the different people that I interact with. I, we can say that I'm interacting with Moshe here through the text, um, but he, um, I think, is able to be the charismatic vocal leader that he's needed to be when he's needed to be that person. He's able to strategically and creatively and try to problem solve um, through complicated situations. And on the other hand, there are parts of his leadership that I absolutely don't want to emulate. Um, he's quick to anger. He um, is quick to blame. And again, there's some complicated reimagining of the narrative here in this story that suggests that he's not totally comfortable with, with his own story. So I hope to, to not model after that. So what comes through here then perhaps is the human dimension of Moshe. And that's something that each and every one of us, whether we're in the rabbinic profession or not, can seek to emulate. We have a few minutes left. If we could turn for a moment to the Haftarah. The Haftarah's Haftarah is Shabbat Chazon. The Shabbat takes its name from the first word of the Haftarah. The last two weeks we read the opening chapters of the prophet Jeremiah, who lived through the destruction of the first temple. And now we have the Haftarah, the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. Um, this is the in scholarly literature, what we call the first Isaiah from the 8th century, shortly before the destruction of the uh, northern kingdom. And here, Isaiah is not so happy. He takes issue with the uh, religious life of the people, the empty sacrifices that they offer, the holidays that they observe that seem to be devoid of ethics. Saturday night, we're going to read from the Book of Lamentations, which is a series of poems mourning the destruction of the, of the first temple. We live in a time without a temple, 
And it can be very hard, as we know, in camp and finding meaning in Tejaba of. The Torah we can understand perhaps in a mythic way. It's part of our prehistory. After all, we don't get into the land when the Torah ends. But Tisha B'Av is supposed to be part of our history. And yet I wonder, even at Camp Ramah, where we attempt and succeed in many different ways in living a rich Jewish life for seven weeks in a vibrant Jewish community, that the destruction of the temple seems so foreign to the campers. Is there a message in Tisha B'Av, do you think, for youngsters growing up in the beginning of the 21st century? I think one of the strongest messages that I'm interested in conveying to our campers and also the staff and everybody who's part of this Ramah community is the impacts that our own behavior can have uh, on our society and also on the, just on the individual level and the people around us. I also think that you know, so much of my perspective on Tisha B'Av is colored by being in camp. I feel like I'm here every year. Um, camp is a place of you know, endless joy and I think it is I don't know if nice is the right word, but there's something important about taking a day when you reflect on something more serious in the course of the summer. So I'd like to thank both of you, Jessica and Gabe. This is the conclusion of our summer season for Apayim Chasre for Parsha Talk. I am your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler. I'd like to wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom, and for those who are fasting on Sunday, a Tzom Kach.